Please turn with me in the word to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're in verse 9 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is where that we left off in this study. I want to thank you for your courage to be able to go through these teachings on sexual integrity. This is the fourth of these messages, and it is the last of of these messages. And then we will continue on uh, with 2 Samuel. I know some of these messages have been difficult, probably difficult uh, to hear, but I think God's really been using them uh, in our lives. So thank you for your your willingness and your courage to, to study God's word in this way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look at David's life, Lord, to to look at his heart after you, Lord, also to look at his sin and his repentance and his restoration. And God, we pray that you would work in all areas of our lives. And as we come to you this morning and look at the consequence of sin, Lord, would you remind us that it's out of your love that you give us consequences, that you never leave us or forsake us in your heart to be able to restore. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God in his love gives us consequence for our sin. In our culture, and our society, we don't talk much about discipline or correction and correcting children, but yet we find in the Proverbs that it says, you know, correct your son and he will give you rest. A father disciplines the child that he loves. In Hebrews chapter 12, God declares that it's evidence that we're his children if he corrects us. So God's correction is not the absence of his relationship with us, but the evidence, the fact that we do belong to him. Think about it this way. Do you discipline all children in the grocery store? I hope not. You're going to get in trouble, right? You know, sometimes you may be tempted to discipline somebody else's kid in the grocery store, but you only discipline your own children because you're their parent. They're your son. They're your daughter. And it's the same with God. It's proof that you're his son, that you're his daughter, that he loves you enough to give you consequences, to teach us, hey, don't go down this road again. David is going to receive several consequences from God, several corrections from God. But God doesn't leave him in those consequences. He also restores his life. So we find grace in consequences. Verse 9, why have you despised the command of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. So the first consequence that David receives is saying, look, you took the sword and you killed Uriah. And so now the sword isn't going to depart from your house. You despised me. You didn't respect me. You didn't respect my command. The consequences oftentimes reflect the sin that we have committed. Galatians chapter 5 says, God's not going to be mocked that whatever we sow, we're going to reap. So if you put these things in the ground, you're going to get that type of fruit. So it's logical. Here, David took somebody else's life. He lived by the sword Now the sword's not going to depart from his house. Specifically, verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. So this violence, the sword, is going to come from within his own house, with his own children. 
as we'll continue to study the book of 2 Samuel, we'll see all of the turmoil that arises inside of his own house. So painful and so difficult. To apply this into this area of sexual sin and sexual integrity, we do have to be honest that sexual sin has an impact upon our homes. You know, when a home is split up because of adultery resulting in, in divorce, it affects, affects the children. When, when a father chooses to walk in sexual sin, it affects his, his kids. Not to the point where there's no hope. We'll see the restoration of God in the midst of it, but it does provide a great amount of, of turmoil. One of the best gifts that you can give to your children if you're a parent or you think you will be a parent in the future is sexual integrity. The security that your children know, no matter what their age is, that dad's committed to mom and mom's committed to dad. To grow up in that type of environment, to say, there's enough craziness in the world, but there's some security in the relationship between mom and dad. They're committed to each other. They're committed to the Lord. They're walking in sexual integrity. That provides a good environment for kids to be able to grow up in. Continuing in verse 11, And I will take your wives before your eyes, and I will give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. This will happen with Absalom, David's own son. He'll take David's wives, David's concubines, take them to a rooftop, set up a a tent, and have sexual relation with them. What's interesting is where did David's sexual sin start? On a rooftop, as he's looking and seeing Bathsheba and then inquires of her. And so now his own son takes his concubines to the, to the rooftop. God says, you've done this in private, but I'm going to do it in a way that is very, very public. We'll see that fulfilled later on. In verse 13, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. Last week, we looked at that in detail. We did a complete study on this verse. So if you missed last week's study, go to the website or to the app and you can listen to, to the teaching there. God is gracious to forgive, gracious to remove David's sin from him. Note in verse 13 that David doesn't complain about the consequences. Here he is getting these heavy consequences. God's saying, you messed with somebody else's house, so you're going to have adversity inside of your own house. You took the sword and you killed someone else, so now the sword is going to, to be in your life. And David could have very easily wrestled with those consequences, complained about those consequences, but we find David accepting those consequences. Okay, I I realize that this is God loving me, this is God correcting me, and living with those consequences. Verse 14, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. So God says, David, you gave occasion for the enemies of Israel to blaspheme God. What's at at stake with sexual integrity? There's a whole lot, isn't there, that's at stake. But one of the things that's at stake is our witness to a lost and dying world. I think as we see our culture getting further and further away from the things of Christ, we start asking ourselves, how do we reach people with the love of Jesus? There may have been a time in our country if you wanted to reach lost people, talk to people that have never heard the gospel before, that you might have had to leave the United States of America. But if you want to be a missionary, you don't have to leave the United States of America anymore. 
You can. God's heart's for the nations. If he's calling you to that, praise the Lord. But there are plenty of people right here that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know of God's love. So how do we get their attention? One of the ways is worshiping the Lord through sexual purity. Saying, I'm committed to the Lord in my heart, and that's going to be expressed in the decisions that I make with my body. Think about it. If you're single and you choose to not have sex until you're married, and you share that as it comes up in conversation with coworkers, you're saying, no, I'm not going there because I'm committed myself to Christ, that's going to get their attention. You're living differently than the world. You're living differently than our culture and our society. If you're married and you're committed to your spouse and you're saying, I'm going to walk in sexual integrity, that's a billboard to a lost and dying world of Christ in the church. That's God's intent for a biblical marriage. We want to get the message out about marriage. How do we do that? By living in a godly way in our love for our spouse. Husbands, loving your wife as Christ loves the church. Wives, respecting your husbands. That's what's at stake. And when we walk in sexual sin, we give opportunity for unbelievers to blaspheme the name of God. We give unbelievers for a reason to say, well, well why would I go to church? Why would I why hear about Christ? They're, they're no different. They're, they're walking in the same sin that I'm walking in. That may have been one of the most heavy things that David heard. You gave occasion for the enemies of God to, to blaspheme. But then he gets this heavy blow where God says, this child that will be born, that was conceived in an adultery, this child is, is going to die. We were talking about this section of scripture as a, as a pastoral staff, and one of our pastors had a great point. And he was saying, when we see David in, in his sin, he didn't value human life, did he? It was no big deal to take Uriah's life. He wasn't concerned with the men that died with Uriah, those, those fellow soldiers. And so now God takes his child and saying, David, you took somebody else's life, so I'm going to take life from you. And we're going to find that David's very grieved over the loss of his child. And that's natural, and it should be that way. And I think what God is showing David is saying, all life matters to me. Your, your child's life mattered, but Uriah's life mattered to me as well. These other soldiers that you killed as well. And so this is a heavy consequence that's placed upon him that his child would die. In verse 15, then Nathan departed to his house. I was wondering what Nathan was thinking as he was going home that day. Remember what took place in verse 1? This is the same conversation. Nathan goes, confronts David, exposes his sin. David acknowledges his sin. David then receives these consequences from God coming through Nathan. And Nathan's walking home. A lot for Nathan to think about. And then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Seems pretty quick. After David's conversation with Nathan, that God then strikes the child. The author of 2 Samuel doesn't back away from the fact that God struck the child. So we have this reality in this section of Scripture that there's the natural consequences that come from sin that we set in motion, but then sometimes in addition to that, God provides his chastisement. God places some consequences on us to, to help us learn. Why would God do that? Is this really evidence of, of God's love? This may seem pretty heavy, but remember, 
What was the law's prescription of judgment for what David had done? To be killed, capital punishment. That is what God had said. For David to be alive was, was God's mercy that was placed upon him. We don't ever see David going back to adultery. We don't see David developing a life of sexual immorality. Because I think he had the consequences in such a way where he said, I don't ever want to go back there. Our son Wyatt, he's three, he'll be four in in June. And for several years now, we've been talking with him about how hot the stove gets. Well, that's a hard concept to get when you're a kid. So I was cooking breakfast this week and had just moved the skillet off of the burner. And we have one of those glass electric tops on on the stove. And he kind of had his hand up there and then it slipped over to the burner. And he got this blister on his thumb and he burned his thumb. He knows now. You know what I'm saying? And the days after that, same type of thing, cooking. He's a young boy. He's got a big appetite. Mom or dad's cooking there. His tendency is to want to get right up on the stove and see what's for dinner and see if he approves or not, you know, type of thing. And now he's keeping his distance a little bit. He's like, I understand that this, this, this can hurt me. And in any area of our lives, sexual sin included, God will, in his love, give consequences to say, I don't ever want to go there again. I bet we have some of those things in our lives, don't we, as believers? Where God, by his grace, allowed some consequences that may have felt harsh or seemed harsh, but it taught us and we learned and we said, I, I don't want to go back there. So David now walks through this process of, of losing his child. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. He, he goes to fasting and prayer, crying out to God that God might be merciful. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. So he, he won't be comforted. He's not eating He's crying out to God. This goes on for seven days. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him. And he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. David's destroyed. He's not eating. Now that the child is dead, can, can we even go and share that with him? He might do, do some harm. Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, is this child dead? And they said, he is dead. You probably have received some really difficult news in your life that you could tell it was catastrophic just by their body language. Maybe your parents were walking up to you and you realize this, this is a different type of conversation. Maybe your spouse is the tone of their voice. When you picked up the phone, you knew that something was, was terribly wrong. By the time they actually come out with it, by the time they actually say it, you're, you're running this question through your mind. Who is it? What's wrong? What, what, what has happened and what's taken place? David knew that his child had died just by their body language, by the way that they were whispering. In verse 20, so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. This is incredible. David, in the midst of the loss of his son, gets up, goes into the house of the Lord, and he worships God. Take note to this. Think about this. Sin, consequences of sin, when we're walking in repentance, 
does not keep us from fellowship with God. When we're walking in hiding, when we're walking in rebellion, that's going to keep us from fellowship with God. David's in a repentant state now, and he's walking through the consequences, and he knows, I can go in and fellowship with God. This should bring some encouragement in our lives to be able to go, man, I really have sinned. I really have blown it. God's loving me enough to allow me to experience the consequences. I'm not going to run from them. I'm going to embrace them, but I'm also fully going to realize that I can come in and fellowship with God. This must have been some intense worship with David, that he could come and have this, this time with the Lord. Then he went into his own house, and when he'd requested, they set food before him, and he ate. This provides confusion for the servants. Then his servants said to him, what is this that you have done? You've fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. I don't get it. While, While he was alive, you're not eating, but as soon as he passes away, now, now you're eating. David said in verse 22, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? David innately knows the heart of God, that God is gracious and merciful. Even though God has pronounced his judgment, his consequence, maybe God will be merciful to me. Maybe God will allow allow the child to live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David makes this great statement. He says, you know what? I know that this child is never going to return to me. One of the most difficult things in life is to watch parents lose their children. I know some of you have had your children pass away. The natural course of things is our kids should bury us. Our kids should be the ones at our memorial services, not the other way around. And the difficulty of the loss of a child is they don't return. And David's mourning all of those things that he's going to miss with this child. The years, the experiences, this child walking, talking, going to first grade for the first time, learning to ride the bike, getting the driver's license, graduating from high school, getting married, grandkids. All of those things are mourned in the loss of, of this child. But David realizes that this child has gone to be with the Lord. He says, I shall go to him. I'm going to see my child again. We're going to be together in eternity. So we understand this about children who pass away that are before the age of accountability, meaning they're not old enough to accept or reject Christ as their Savior. When they pass away, they go home to be with the Lord. And he has that confidence of saying, I'm going to be with my son. I'm going to be with my child. In verse 24, then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son And he called his name Solomon. So now we begin to see this restoration that takes place. David with God, now David with Bathsheba. So we have this tension in this passage where we have the consequences. And these consequences are going to stay and endure because of God's love for David to teach him. But also in the same time, now God's being gracious and restoring this relationship with Bathsheba. And you would think because they started wrong that maybe from that point on there would be no hope for the two of them, but God allows them to get pregnant again and blesses them with a child. And we know this to be true, but stop and think about that. Every child is a gift from God. Every child is a a miracle of conception. 
We look at it through the lens of science and we go, how in this world would this even take place? It's God breathing life. And God blessed them with a child. God blessed them with Solomon. And Solomon's name is very important. It says that he called his name Solomon. David called his name Solomon. Solomon means God is peace. He knew that God had brought peace into his life, that he was right with the Lord. He knew that he was right with Bathsheba. And he says, God is peace. But it goes on to declare, now the Lord loved him. Speaking of the child, the Lord loved Solomon. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. I love this. Nathan gets another message from God. The first message is very difficult. Now the second message is, Nathan, you need to go tell David that this boy Solomon that he's just had, his name means to be Jedediah. Do you know what Jedediah means? It means beloved of God. And right here in the passage, God's declaring, I love this boy. I love this child. It shows the grace and the restoration of God. As we continue with this story in the Old Testament, Solomon becomes a huge character. He builds the temple. He writes three books of the Old Testament. He's the wisest man of his time. And God puts his favor upon Solomon. Solomon's going to take the throne of David. Solomon is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And the beginnings of David and Bathsheba were all wrong. Adultery, murder, and yet God now is restoring this relationship. Some of you may be wrestling with, I'm in my second marriage, I'm in my third marriage, and my prior marriage, I blew it up with my sin, with my adultery, with my rebellion before God. What do I do now? Do I go back to my first spouse? And 1 Corinthians 7 verse 17 says, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. The marriage you're in is the one that God wants to make last. And he wants to pour out grace into the midst of this relationship. We don't see God having a dark cloud over David and Bathsheba once they repented and were right with God. That's encouraging, isn't it? Some of you go, you know, I don't even like telling people how I met my spouse. Because it was all wrong and it was sinful. Maybe you join a home fellowship, a small group, and they're like, hey, how did you guys meet? And you're like, uh, well, that's a story for another day. <laughs> God is gracious, and he rebuilds, and he blesses. And there's a Jedediah, and the Lord's saying, I love Jedediah, I love Solomon. A couple came up and talked with me after the 11 o'clock service a week ago, last Sunday. And they said, can we share our story with you? And I said, Absolutely. And the husband began to describe that when he was 14, he started looking at pornography. And it became a part of his life, a weekly part of, of his life, for about 10 years. And included into when he was engaged, in the premarital, and in his marriage. Believer this whole time. What we've been talking about. Exactly what we've been speaking of the last, the last several weeks. And during this time, him and his wife were trying to have kids and... They weren't able to have kids. God didn't bless them with that pregnancy. And then three years ago, he got convicted before God, and he repented. And he really emphasized, I want my story to be known because I want people to know that there's hope. 
that God can bring you out of a place of sexual sin, walking in sexual integrity. That his words were when we repent and follow God, how gracious God is and how God restores. Been walking in sexual integrity for about a year, and they got pregnant. They have a little boy now. Do you know what they named their son? Jedediah. Loved of God. This is a very sweet section of scripture for them because they came to understand God's redemption in their lives. In his story, he emphasized that it wasn't easy, that there was a lot of work. That God did the work, but God wanted him to work. And sometimes in our lives, in struggles with sin, we come up and we receive prayer, and God takes away the temptation, takes away the bondage in one moment. God's able to do that. We've heard testimonies of that. But a lot of times in our lives, in areas where we're in bondage to sin, God says it's going to be difficult. And he described that he was thankful for the challenge because it took him deeper in his relationship with the Lord. It's in an area where he's continuing to walk in dependency upon, upon the Lord. Now it's been three years that he's been walking in sexual integrity. We've been hearing a lot of those types of stories of how God has redeemed, how God has brought believers out of sexual sin into sexual integrity, and how God has blessed them with a Jedediah. Sometimes it is a literal son. Other times it's God showing his grace and his mercy. In some area of our life, I think we all have a Jedediah. We all have a story like David where we've gone into sin as a believer, where God has corrected us, where he's given us consequences, but yet at the same time, he's been gracious and he's been merciful. Before we finish out this chapter, I want to take a moment to pause in this series on sexual integrity, and we've looked at a lot of things that go wrong inside of sexuality because of adultery, because of the word of God. We've talked openly about that in our culture, in our society, in our lives. But what we find now in these verses is David and Bathsheba living inside of healthy biblical sexuality. Yes, it started wrong, but now they're, they're married. They're living inside of God's commands, God's design, and God blesses them. And this is one of the things that I've realized is God's message on sexuality is not getting out. The world gets to define the message on sexuality. So since we've talked about the sin... Let's also talk about God's design. What did God have in mind when he created sex? And I think this is important. Because if you're single, you're saying, well, this isn't really for me. You know, sex isn't a part of my life. Thank you for, for torturing me. Even if you never got married, if God calls you to a life of singleness, you still have to understand God's design and what God's trying to communicate in his design. So I, I think it is, is important. So first thing is... The marriage bed is honorable and undefiled. It's pure. God says it's good. God declares in his word. He says, he that finds a wife finds a good thing. It's pure and undefiled. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Christianity is almost the only one of religions which thoroughly approves the body, which believes that matter is good. God himself once took on a human body. A lot of false religions teach that the body is bad. That matter is bad. What's your concept of the human body? A biblical concept of the human body is that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. That God's a great designer. Jesus took on a human body. God in human flesh. So inside of sex, in marriage, when two bodies get together, it's good. 
So it's, it's honorable before the Lord. A second thing is God's view of sexuality between a husband and a wife is it's wonderful and powerful resulting in creative reproduction. It's what God put his stamp of approval on to say, when this takes place, a life is going to come into existence. Think for a moment, husbands and wives, God has given to you creative power. Even if those of you that are single, if you use it outside of marriage, God has given you creative power. An amazing expression of one flesh. 23 chromosomes from the male, 23 chromosomes from the female to make a new life. As a parent, you look into the eyes of your children and you're like, I see mom. And then the other times you're like, I see dad. It's amazing, like our kids, they've got some of Amber's personality and some of my personality and then some of grandma and grandpa's personality mixed in here and to make their own unique soul. But you see some of your own traits in, in your own children. You're like, I know that. I understand that. They got that from dad. They got that from, from mom. Oh, you've got my ears. Oh, you've got my nose, you know. You've got your mother, mother's eyes. It, it's a wonderful and powerful creative power that God has given. Chesterton wrote this paragraph on this. It's a little wordy. Try to stick with it and then I'll attempt to explain it. He said, sex is an instinct that produces an institution. And is not positive, and it is positive and not negative, noble and not base, creative and not destructive, because it produces this institution. That institution is the family, a small state of commonwealth which has hundreds of aspects. When it is once started, that are not sexual at all. It includes worship, justice. Festivity, decoration, institution, camaraderie, repose. Sex is the gate of that house. And romantic and imaginative people naturally like looking through a gateway, but the house is very much larger than the gateway. There are indeed a certain number of people who like to hang out about the gate and never get any further. There is no family that was ever started without sex. So, what Chesterton is telling us is there's this institution of the family that God designed to begin with sex sexuality. And many people only stand at the gate. They only experience the gate, but they never come to realize the intent was God was creating the institution, the beautiful thing that we call family. So another thing to consider, what did God have in mind with sexuality between a husband and a wife? Is it reflects the unity of the Trinity. So the Trinity is the ultimate unity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but yet one God. When God created Adam and Eve, he filled in the blanks for us. He said male and female. He knew that that would be in question in generations like ours. So he states it right at the beginning in Genesis. It says, Adam, you're male. Eve, you're female. And he says, you are made in the image of God. So male and female together fully represents the image of God. Inside of the union between a husband and a wife in all areas of our relationship, it ultimately reflects the union of the Trinity. And that includes sex as well. God said in Genesis chapter 2 that a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and be one flesh. 
So the union of a husband and wife, it reflects the union of the Trinity. Another thing about God's design for sex is it's soul glue. It actually binds us together. Cleave to your wife and you become one flesh. You are glued together. Let's look at science for for a moment. Science now knows when people have sex together, there's two chemicals that are released. Maybe more, but we know for sure too. The first is dopamine. And dopamine is this chemical that God gives to your body to help you remember the details. It's the system of reward. So if there's something good that you experience, your body will release dopamine so you remember. So you're programmed and you're saying, this is a good thing. So now we start to understand why God put it between a husband and wife inside of the commitment of marriage. That's expressed, and then God gives that chemical to you. You remember the details, and your body's saying, this is a good thing. Another important chemical that's released is oxytocin. And oxytocin is the bonding chemical. When a mom has a baby and then nurses that baby, we know oxytocin is released. It causes that bond, that crazy powerful bond between mom and kids. God designed it that way. So when you are having sex with your spouse, you're remembering all the details and you're being bonded together. And I think if you don't understand that, and you don't view sexuality through the lens of Scripture, you may adopt the wrong attitude about sex because the world's giving you the message on sex. But God says it's the glue of the soul. You take two pieces of construction paper and you glue it together with Elmer's glue. Takes you back to elementary school, doesn't it? Try to rip those pieces of paper apart. It's going to be very destructive. The same way when two people have sex together and then they get pulled apart. It causes great destruction. But inside of marriage, it's a great thing. Do you want to be glued to your spouse? Absolutely. God is gluing your souls together. Another thing that scripture tells us is sex between a husband and wife protects one another from temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 protects one another from temptation. Do you want to help protect your spouse from sexual temptation? Absolutely. And then this is something that's only shared between you and your spouse. Isn't that pretty cool? It's only shared between you and your spouse. There's a lot of things in life that that are shared. Your ideas are, are shared. Your conversations are shared. But this area of sexuality, it's only shared between you and your spouse. I know that there's a lot of couples that struggle in this area of sexual intimacy with one, one another. I think there's an attack of the enemy. Satan wants to destroy us. He's made that clear. So he'll try to get people in bed before they're married. And then once they are married, he'll try to keep them out of bed with their spouse. So maybe there's some difficulty in this area of your relationship. And you go, Eric, I know these things. I know God's design, but yet there's still a struggle and there's still a challenge. I believe there's hope. And the first is really examine the scripture about what God says about sexuality and adopt God's view of it. And say, maybe I have accepted a view that's not God's view because there was a lot of hurt in my life. Or there was this person that that told me this. Or I've really come to get Hollywood's view instead of of God's view. God, help me to see this from your view and your perspective. And then also pray over this area of your marriage. You're saying, now you've just gone too far. I'm not going to pray over this area of of my marriage. You pray over your finances. You pray over your communication. God, we're really struggling with communicating with each other. 
ask that God would work in and bless this area of your marriage. Talk about sexual intimacy together. This is not an area of your relationship that should be you don't talk about. You should talk about it. If you've never talked about it before in your marriage, this afternoon, set aside some time and talk about it. What do you think? And begin to see how God would use that conversation. I've sat down with couples that have been married for years, and I'll say, have you guys ever talked with one another about your sexual intimacy? Nope. We've never talked about that. Well, why not? See what God would do if you begin to talk about it. And then consider your spouse's needs above your own in sexual intimacy and in every other area of your life. If you're not serving your spouse on a daily basis and considering their need, it's probably going to be difficult to have a healthy sex life. Husbands, you need to hear that. There's a saying that says, good lovemaking begins in the kitchen. And what that means is, if you're someone who's engaged in the daily life of your family and serving your spouse, that's going to result in some connection that's going to result in good intimacy. But also inside of this area of your marriage, the world says sex is something selfish. God says sex is something to build up your spouse. So instead of considering yourself, you're considering them. And both should be edified. Both the husband and, and wife should be edified in sexual intimacy together. And you're saying, well, Eric, five minutes on this topic is not going to solve our problems. Thank you very much. I'm going to go home. This is what I would encourage you to do. Don't stop here. Maybe consider going to see a biblical counselor. Maybe come and schedule an appointment with with a pastor that you trust. You're saying, well, I would never do either one of those. Well, pick up some good Christian books on this topic. There's some great writing on this topic. One book that I would recommend, it's called The Act of Marriage, The Act of Marriage by Tim LaHaye. If you've got a Kindle, you could probably, you know, download it for $6. Make a $6 investment in your marriage. But this is what you don't want to do if you're married and not experiencing healthy intimacy is just neglected. Just to say, well, you know what? We're not in sexual sin. We're not looking at pornography. We're not in adultery. But we're not experiencing the health that God, God would desire is go to the Lord. Ask God to work in this area. Examine the scriptures. Get help if needed, and God will do a work. He'll do a work of healing. He'll do a work of of restoration. And I know there's a lot of things that I didn't mention that contribute to difficulty in this area, but God is a God of redemption, not only of redeeming things that we've experienced in our past, but also redeeming things that may be broken in our lives. So we look at the end of this chapter, David experiences victory in some military battles. Verse 26 down to verse 31. Now Joab fought against Rehoboth of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I fought against Rehoboth. I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rehoboth and fought against it and took it. David's now back in the battle. That's what got him in trouble in the first place is he stayed home from the battle. In verse 30, then he took the king's crown from his head. The, its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones and it was set on David's head. Also, 
He brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over the brick works. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. It's God's grace that he brings continued military victory to David. Augustine said this about David's life. David's fall should put those who have fallen on their guard and save from despair those who have. If you haven't fallen in this area of sexual sin, it should cause you to be on guard. If David can fall, anyone can fall. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. If you have fallen, David's life should save you from despair. Should understand there's grace in consequences. Okay, God loves me enough. There's going to be consequences from my choices and actions. I can't get away from that. It's evidence that I'm his child, but there's also going to be a Jedediah in my life. There's going to be a Solomon in my life. That God is peace. That God is love. And as we close this series, I want to encourage you to come on Saturday. I really believe that God is going to do a work in our church and in our, in our fellowship. And like Robert mentioned, if you're walking in integrity in this area, you need to come because God is calling you to help somebody else. In our Christian life, it's not just about us. And if he's allowed victory in your life, then you're going to receive some tools to be able to come alongside and help someone else. This is real in our church. We have seen this prior to this study, during this study, sexual temptation, sexual sin, and to engage instead of run away if you're doing well in this area. If you're struggling, if you're in bondage, maybe the guilt and the shame and the fear and the doubt that God could do a work in your life, man, come and invest in this conference. And then after this conference, we're going to have book studies for men and women to go even further and to go, go deeper. And then maybe after that book study, to continue to press in to continue to do the work. But you remember the question that we began with? What if? What if? What would it look like in our lives if we began to walk in sexual integrity? What would it be like in our church if we walked in sexual integrity? It's possible in Christ. A deeper fellowship with Christ. Knowing Christ in a greater way. A greater testimony inside of marriages. Thanks for taking this journey with us. We're excited about the conference. We're excited about the book studies. We're excited about what God's going to continue to do in our lives. So let's pray, and we'll enter into a time of communion. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story in David's life. Thank you that you share it with us, that you are bold enough to not just say that David was perfect, not just show us his strength, but also show us his sin. And God, we want to learn from his story. We want to fear you and understand the consequences of sin are real, but also to know your forgiveness, to know your restoration. Would you apply your word to our hearts and and to our minds? As we take communion now, would you minister to us and encourage us? In Jesus' name, amen.